a little boy came to his dad with a box in his hand and said, Dad, my turtle has died. And the boy was distraught. He loved that little turtle. And the dad's heart went out to his son. And he thought, I'm going to use this to teach him some, some spiritual truth. He talked about how death doesn't have to always be sad. That because of Christ, when we die, we get to go and be with him. And he said, as a matter of fact, you know what we're going to do today? We're, we're going to celebrate. We're not going to mourn today. We're going to celebrate to, to kind of teach him this truth. And so he said to his son, go get your friends down the street and bring them over. And we're going to eat ice cream. And we're going to play games. And we're going to have a big party today. And the boy's eyes lit up. And he got really excited. And as they were having this conversation, they looked down in the box. And the turtle had begun to move. It, it wasn't dead after all. The boy looked down and looked up at his dad, kind of disappointed, and said, Dad, can we kill it? Now, now the moral of that story is not everything that looks dead is dead. Something can look dead and, and, and be alive. But the opposite is also true. Did you know something can look alive and really be dead? Jesus shows us this is true of a church. A church can look alive and yet be powerless and spiritually dead. And I want us to see this warning from Jesus in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We are continuing our summer sermon series titled A Message to the Church. And we're looking at seven specific messages that Jesus had for seven specific churches in first century Asia Minor. And we're applying those messages to our church. So this is a message to our church. And we're learning from these messages this summer. Revelation chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 1. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Truth with no mixture of error. I'm, I'm grateful for my Bible. How about you? Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and, and we are so grateful, so grateful for the redemption, the salvation, the forgiveness, the eternal life, the grace, the mercy, the love that is found in Jesus. Lord, to be able to stand before you as a gathered group of believers and sing and bless your name 
is a remarkable privilege. We thank you, Lord, for your presence here. Your word says that you, you inhabit the praises of your people. In some way in which we can't fully understand or comprehend, Lord, you are here. And we rejoice in your presence. And Lord, we come to you today expectant. Deliver us from going through the motions. Deliver us from church as usual. God, help us to expect you to do something in our lives. Something in our homes. Something in our church. Would you take your word by your spirit and transform us today? Have your way in our midst. Help us, Lord, to lift high the mighty name of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. These seven messages to seven churches that we are studying uh, were given to the Apostle John when he was in exile on a barren island called Patmos. He was in prison for preaching the gospel and while he was on this island, Jesus appeared to him to give him what we call the book of Revelation. And these series of visions and insights begin with, with seven messages to seven churches. And he records these, and these messages were intended to be taken to these churches. And so we've come to the message to the church in Sardis. It says there in verse 1, to the angel, I believe that speaks of the messenger, the messenger, the pastor, of the church in Sardis. Now, this is not Sardis, Mississippi, all right? And, and next week, we're not going to study the message to the church in Enid, all right? This is, this is a different Sardis. This is Sardis in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Sardis was about 33 miles southeast of Thyatira, and it was situated on a steep hill 1,500 feet above a valley. Now, the hill on which the city was built was surrounded on three sides by steep, almost perpendicular rocks. And the south side was guarded by a steep climb that you had to make to access the city. And so this made the city almost a perfect defense against invasion. I mean, they were well protected from invading armies. Now remember that. That's going to be important as we talk some more about this church in a few moments. Now we know that in AD 17, the... The church in, or the, the city of Sardis was, was devastated by an earthquake, but was rebuilt due in large part to the efforts of the Roman emperor Tiberius. And even though it was rebuilt, it never recaptured its former glory before the earthquake. But still, even after the earthquake, it had a theater, a stadium, it had a road made of marble. Can you imagine that? So there were some impressive parts uh, to this city. Now we know from archaeology that there were multiple temples to pagan gods. But there was also a large Jewish population in this city because archaeology has discovered a very, very large synagogue there in the city. That's the setting uh, of this message. There was a handful of believers in this city, the church in Sardis, and Jesus has a message for them. Now, in Ephesus, we saw that the church had left its first love. In Smyrna, the church was facing persecution. In Pergamum, the church had some who held the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In Thyatira, the church was tolerating, tolerating an immoral woman named Jezebel. But in Sardis, though the church seemed to be doing well, in reality, it was dead. 
And Jesus is, is addressing their spiritual deadness in this passage. Now, I came across a quote from uh, the great preacher Vance Havner, where he talks about spiritual ministries and the stages they go through. And he said, spiritual ministries go through four stages. They often begin with a man or a small group of people that have a vision for how God can use them. So it starts with a man. And then it goes to a movement. God begins to use these people and do great things through these people. But then, if, if the, the, move, the people in the movement are not careful, the movement becomes a machine. People just kind of keep the plate spinning and, and keeping the ministries running. And then, if something doesn't change, that movement becomes a monument. A man, a movement, a machine, a monument. And Jesus is saying to this church in Sardis, you've become a monument. You're no longer being used. You no longer have the power of God residing on you, working through you. You are dead. So what I want to do this morning is I want to study this message, and I want to make five comments, give you five thoughts about a dead church. And then I want to talk about how a dead church comes to life, or how a church that is alive keeps from going to the place of spiritual death. And so let's talk about what a dead church is characterized by five thoughts about a dead church. Number one, and this is so important, a dead church may not know it's dead. A dead church may not know it's dead. Look what Jesus says in verse 1. He who has the seven spirits of God, we'll talk about that phrase in a few moments, and the seven stars. The seven stars represent the seven pastors, the seven messengers of the churches, says this. Jesus is saying this to this church. I know your deeds. And then he says that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Did you get that? Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you're doing some things. There's some, some ministry happening. The machinery is running. And I know you have a name in this city. I know that you have a reputation of being a good church. But from my perspective, Jesus says, you are dead. They had some works, they had a reputation, but there was no spiritual power or impact. Now, I want to give you this statement. This is a very important statement. Ongoing ministry and past success do not accurately convey a church's spiritual condition. Ongoing ministry, just because plates are spinning and the machine is running and people are maintaining programs, ongoing ministry and past success do not accurately convey a church's true spiritual condition. Listen, a church can be busy and a church can be thought of well in a community and it can be dead. That's what Jesus says here. It's a warning for the church. Now, this should not surprise us. We see this happening in an ever-increasing way in our society, in our country. Because in 2 Timothy 3, 5, Paul wrote that in the last days there would be people that have the appearance of godliness while denying its power. So it's, it's possible to look godly and to look busy in the service of God and yet not have the power of God resting on your life or on your church. Church. That's the point that Jesus is making in this passage. 
So a dead church may not know it's dead. And so I believe that churches need to heed this warning and constantly evaluate what's happening. Are we just playing church, or is God doing some things through our church? Are, are, are lost people being touched? Are, are lives being changed? Are things happening? Is the church alive with, with worship and fervor and passion for the Lord Jesus? Or are we just going through the motions? I think there's a great question to ask. Every church ought to ask itself. That helps us to understand if we're alive or dead. Here's the question. If our church closed its doors tomorrow and just ceased to exist, would anybody really notice? Would it leave a void in the community? And a void in the nation and a void in the world? Would, would anybody notice if, if our church shut its doors? And if we ever get to the place where we say, no, no one would notice, then we've got to come to grips with the fact that our church is dead, right? We've got to evaluate. Are we having impact? Is God using us? Are we serious about the things of God? Are we making a difference with the gospel? A dead church may not know it's dead. So you've got, be, you've got to be watching and evaluate what's happening. Secondly, a dead church has not been keeping watch. That's the reason it's dead. It has not been keeping watch. Look what Jesus says in verse 2. He says, wake up. Everybody say, wake up. Some of you need to hear that literally. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. And then look what he says in verse 3. Second part, the latter part of that verse. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So Jesus says, wake up, and if you don't wake up, I'm going to come in judgment. It's time for you to wake up, understand your spiritual condition, so you can get right with me. Now this word or phrase, wake up, literally can be translated, keep watch, or, or be on the alert. And this would have meant a great deal to the people of the city of Sardis. Now remember that I told you earlier that the city of Sardis was well defended against attack. Three sides were, were almost perpendicular cliffs. I mean, you, 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 you couldn't attack them from those angles. And, and the other south side was a steep uh, road. All you had to do was protect that road and watch over the cliffs, and you could keep that city from falling. If, listen... If the watchmen did their jobs. But we know that twice in its history, Sardis was conquered by enemies, and it all went back to a failure of the watchmen. In 547 B.C., Cyrus II, king of Persia, came against Sardis. And history records that he was able to conquer that city because the watchmen were not watching. They thought they could not be conquered. They thought that no one could take that city. So they were not doing their job, and they were defeated. In 214 B.C., Antiochus III, the Greek king, came again and conquered that city again due to a failure on the part of the watchmen. And so this became proverbial. People would say, don't be like the folks in Sardis. Keep watch. Be on the alert. Now, why weren't the watchmen keeping watch? Perhaps they thought the city could not be taken. It was surrounded by formidable cliffs and walls, but they were wrong. 
And Jesus says, you need to wake up. You need to keep watch to understand your spiritual condition so you can come alive for my glory. You see, a dead church has rested on its reputation and taken the presence and power of Jesus for granted. Somewhere along the line, as they were doing ministry, the people of a dead church stopped keeping watch. And they started just going through the motions and taking the Lord for granted and living off their past reputation or living off their laurels. And before they knew it, they were dead. And Jesus says, wake up. A dead church has not been keeping watch. Here's the third thing I want you to see about a dead church. A dead church is merely existing and lacks purpose. It's what a dead church is characterized by. It's there, it's doing some stuff. People know where it meets, and yet it, it has no purpose for why it is continuing on. Look what happens in verse 2. Jesus says, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Now, I find that a highly encouraging verse. Jesus says, I'm not through with your church yet. Wake up. I mean, get right with me, because I'm not, I have some things I want you to do. Now, if they didn't respond, Jesus says, I'll come like a thief, and I'll come in judgment, and it'll be too late. But if you'll respond and come alive, then I'll use you, because I've got some plans and purposes for your church. But a church that is dead forgets that. Jesus wanted the church to be restored because he had a plan for that church. He was not through with the church in Sardis. And so a dead church is merely existing and lacks purpose. A dead church forgets why it does what it does. You ever thought, why are we doing this? Why the corporate worship and the connect groups and the mission trips and the church planting and the budget and all the ministry. Why, why, why are we doing all this? I mean, why are we here? What's it all about? And it is very, very, very easy for a church to lose sight of what it's all about. It's very easy for a church not to keep the main thing the main thing. The church in Sardis had forgotten that Jesus had some things for them to do. She says, wake up. I have some deeds for you to complete. Now, if you put my two-year-old daughter in front of a computer screen with a keyboard, man, she'll type away. I mean, she'll, she'll, she'll type away on that keyboard. And, 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 if you, and if I sit before that keyboard and the computer screen, I'll be typing away too. But what's happening on the screen are two totally different things. Abby's just punching buttons. It's just, it's just gibberish, right? I, I may be trying to compose an email or write a sermon or write a blog or something like that. And so I'm, I'm trying to craft and think through what I'm, I have a purpose in what I'm typing. She's just pecking away. And, and if a church is not careful, it can find itself just pecking away at ministry. And really having no purpose behind what it's doing. Not going in any direction. No plans, no strategy. The dead church just exists just goes through the motions and lacks that deep, deep sense of purpose. Which leads me to the fourth thought about a dead church. A dead church has forgotten some things. A dead church has forgotten some things. Look what Jesus says in verse 3. So, remember. Remember. If you're going to wake up, if you're going to come alive, if you're going to be used by me again anew and afresh, 
you've got to remember some things, which teaches us that the church had forgotten some stuff. So what had the church in Sardis forgotten? Two very, very important things. First of all, the church in Sardis had forgotten the power of the gospel. Look what the Bible says there in verse 3. So remember what you have received. Remember what you have received. What had they received? They had received the gospel. At some point in the history of the church in Sardis, someone had come into town and began to share the life-transforming message of Jesus. Someone shared that we are all sinners separated from God. We all deserve His wrath and His judgment. We all deserve hell. But the good news is that God loves us. And He loves us so much, He sent His only Son, Jesus, to this earth. And Jesus went to the cross of His own initiative. And when He went to the cross, He took all of our sins on Himself, and then He died for those sins. He took the punishment that you and I deserve. He was our substitutionary sacrifice at Calvary, right? And then after he died on the cross, he was buried early on Sunday morning. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He defeated death itself. So, if you will, turn to Christ. He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll change your life, give you hope, peace, meaning, joy, fulfillment, purpose, life. If you will turn to Christ. That's good news, right? And somebody coming to Sardis and shared that good news. And Jesus is saying, you forgot what you received. You forgot the life-changing power and potential of the gospel. I like how Paul says it in Romans chapter 1. As a matter of fact, when I went to Uganda to do some training with pastors in Kosoro, many of you have been there to Kosoro. In Pastor George's church, there's this banner on the, the, the back wall behind the pulpit. And in Kifumbira, this verse, Romans 1.16, is, is on that banner. And the verse is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Listen, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek and a church that is dead has forgotten the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know how you know? Because people aren't being saved. The baptismal waters aren't being stirred. People are not being encountered with the good news. And, and people are just going through the motions, they're meeting together, but, but there's no outreach. No one's sharing that message. And people stop sharing that message when they forget its power. You say, wait, our culture is decaying. Yes, you're exactly right. Wait, the church is under attack in our nation. You are absolutely right. We are being bombarded. Our religious liberties are being stripped away. Wait, things look dark and bleak in our land. You are absolutely right. But you need to understand that we are not powerless. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we can see life after life after life after life after life after life changed by the grace of God if we will just present that good news message. And so, this church had forgotten the power of the gospel. They'd forgotten. They were powerless and lifeless because no one was, was sharing that message. They had forgotten what they had received. And then, this dead church had forgotten the power of the Word of God. Look what he says there 
in verse 3. So remember what you have received, I believe that speaks of the gospel, and heard, and keep it, and repent. What, did they, what had they heard? Well, I believe by this time, near the end of the first century, there were documents being copied and passed around to the churches that we now call the New Testament. Letters of Paul, letters of Peter, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So there was this, there was this body of truth, uh, which, were, which was the teaching of the apostles, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And by this time, they had these messages. Maybe not in its completed form that we have, but they, they were being collected. There was this body of truth, all right? And they had heard something of the Word of God. It had been, the truth had been presented to them. And Jesus says, you've forgotten what you heard. You've forgotten the very Word of God, the power of the Word of God. Listen to me. When a church walks away from the authority of the Bible, death is soon to follow. As a matter of fact, if you look across the landscape of America, we see many mainline denominations dying. They can't even find pastors to pastor the churches and the church buildings they have. And churches are closing their doors rapidly in many of these mainline denominations. And the, the characteristic that they hold in common is they've walked away from the authority of the Bible. When you walk away from the authority of the Word of God, death is sure to follow. Listen, there's no power if you and I just get together and share our opinions about things. Right? But when you get together and you begin to fellowship around the living and active and sharp Word of God, there is, there is transformative power in that. When you build your life and your home and your ministry on the authority of the unchanging Word of God, there is power in that. And I believe the church in Sardis had forgotten that. They'd forgotten what they had heard. Maybe not that big of a deal anymore. The result was lifelessness. So a dead church has forgotten some things, and this church had forgotten some crucial realities. Number five, let me give you a final statement about dead churches, and then we're going to talk about how a church comes alive or stays alive. Number five, God's mighty movement, this is important, God's mighty movement doesn't stop because of a dead church. You need to understand that. Now everybody look at me for a moment. God doesn't need us. We need Him. And He chooses to use us. But if we ever die and become lifeless and powerless, God will not be up in heaven wringing His hands saying, Oh dear, what will I do now? No, He'll just, he'll just keep marching forward for His glory, expanding His kingdom. We just won't get to be a part of that. God doesn't need us, but he invites us to be a part of the most exciting, thrilling adventure you could ever imagine. That's being a witness to Jesus Christ, impacting lostness with the light of the gospel, making disciples. That's the most exciting adventure that you can ever imagine. And, and the Lord invites us to be a part of that. But if we die, God's vision and mission do not die. God keeps marching on. Now look what he says there. In verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their garments. Now he says, 
you have, the, the word is eikais in the Greek language. It's a second person singular, which matches up with the word uh, angel or messenger in verse 1. So when he says you have, he's talking to the pastor. He's, he's saying in your church, in Sardis, you have some folks who are not dead. Some folks who have not soiled their garments. This speaks of the purity of their faith. Their faith is the real deal. They're true followers of mine. They are genuinely saved. They're not dead, even though they're in a dead church. You see, among the smoldering ashes of the church in Sardis, there were a few glowing embers, which reminds us of this important truth. You listening? God always has a faithful remnant. God always has a faithful remnant. If you look at the Old Testament, God would would come and judge his people because they turned their back on him and bring devastating judgment. But he always had a remnant of, of people who were faithful to him. You remember over in 1 Kings when Elijah was being threatened by Jezebel and he flees for his life and he goes and lays down by a river and says, God, will you just take my life? I want to die. He's discouraged, fearful. And the Lord took him to Mount Sinai, the Bible says. Where he spoke to Moses, gave him the Ten Commandments. And, and he said to, he, he spoke to Elijah, and he did not speak to him in a whirlwind, even though a whirlwind came against that mountain. He did not speak to him in a great fire, even though the mountain was engulfed in flames. He did not speak to him in the earthquake that shook that mountain. The Bible says that the Lord spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice. And he says to Elijah, Elijah, I'm not through with you yet. Oh, and by the way, you need to understand, Elijah, you're not the only faithful follower of mine. There are still thousands who have not bowed their knee to Baal. God always has a faithful remnant. Over in Isaiah 6, the Lord appears to Isaiah in his great vision. He sees the Lord seated on his throne, and, and the Lord shows him the, the, the glory of purification from sin, how great it is to be forgiven. And when Isaiah experiences this, he cries out when the Lord says, Who am I going to send? Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. And in the latter part of that chapter, the Lord sends Isaiah with a very difficult message. His message was to say to the people of Israel, Judgment is coming, and it will be devastating. The Lord's going to cut down the tree of Israel. But then the end of that chapter says, But he's going to leave a stump. He will not completely devastate Israel. There's going to be a faithful remnant of believers that God will continue to work through so that one day he can send a Messiah through the Jews. God always has a faithful remnant. Even if the church in America continues down its pathway to spiritual deadness, God will have a faithful remnant in this nation. The question is, are you going to be one of them? A genuine, pure follower of Jesus Christ. A purity of faith. They had not soiled their garments. And Jesus says, my true followers, those that are truly born again, have some rewards in heaven. Look what he says to them in verse 5. He who overcomes, he who is victorious. The word there is where we get the word Nike from. He who is victorious. In other words, the one who is, is truly my follower, the one who is genuinely saved, will get some rewards in heaven. What's the first one? The first one is this, eternal forgiveness and imputed righteousness. Look what Jesus says. 
He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. So when we get to heaven, we're going to get some white garments which are symbolic. They picture some spiritual realities in the life of the redeemed. First of all, forgiveness. Did you know apart from Christ, we are filthy and dirty and ruined and sinful and depraved? As a matter of fact, over in Isaiah, the Bible says that our righteousness, the best we can do in our own strength, is like filthy rags before God. That's what the Bible says. Why? We've sinned against God. Sin has, has made us impure. But when we meet Jesus, he applies the blood that he shed at Calvary for you to your spiritual account. And listen, the Bible says, he washes away your sins. He takes the filth and he makes you as white as snow. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so these white garments picture not our goodness, they picture the forgiveness that Christ offers us. But notice these are garments that you put on. I believe this speaks of the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Now, here's a truth that a lot of Christians don't get, and it's glorious. You ready? When you met Jesus, at that moment of conversion, you were forgiven of all your sins. But that's not all that happened. Not only did Christ forgive you and wash away your sins, he gave you his perfection as a covering. He gave you his righteousness to robe you in. So listen, now when God looks at our lives, he sees us as, as, as bearing the righteousness of his son. That's why we can come into his presence and have access with, with boldness and confidence. Our sins have been washed away. We're no longer separated from God. And now we are robed in the perfection, the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. You say, wait, prove it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Listen, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now notice I said imputed righteousness. That word imputed means given. It's not ours. It's given to us. And these white garments that we put on picture the righteousness that Jesus gives us to, to wear. So true followers of Christ have a great reward in heaven, eternal forgiveness and imputed righteousness. These white garments are going to picture that. It's like Wimbledon. Everyone's going to have on white. A few tennis fans. Okay, maybe not many tennis fans. I thought that was a good illustration. But you have these white garments. Secondly, the second reward for the faithful, those that are true followers of Christ, will be a permanent place in the book of life. Look what the Bible says there in verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And so here's the promise of Jesus. If you get to heaven because you're a true follower of Christ, if you're saved, you're truly saved, you will get to heaven one day, and when you get there, you need to understand that your name, which is in the book of life, will never be blotted out. Never. The Bible teaches that everyone who has placed their faith in Christ, their name is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's there. And it'll always be there. Now this promise to not blot out the name meant a lot to a Roman citizen. Did you know that a Roman citizen could be convicted of a crime and the Roman Empire could go to the record books and erase their name from citizenship? So when Jesus says, once a citizen of heaven, 
always a citizen of heaven. This meant a great deal to these Christians in Sardis. A permanent place in the book of life. If you know Christ, your name is there. Your name's there. And listen to me, it'll always be there. Praise the Lord. There's one more reward here, one more. The confession of Jesus on their behalf. Look in verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So Jesus says, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be, because when we get there, Jesus, our advocate, Jesus, our high priest, will name our names before the Father and before the, the, the angels who are watching in heaven. That's pretty awesome. And this is not the only time Jesus has said this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Luke chapter 12, verse 8, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. So if you're a true follower of Christ, if you're truly saved, when you get to heaven, Jesus will confess you before everyone in heaven. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like. But it might go something like this. Father, cherubim, seraphim, heavenly host. You see Wade Humphreys right there? He's a sinner. He doesn't deserve to be here. He rebelled against me turned his back to me, did things I told him not to do, and didn't do things I told him to do. But he's here in heaven. And he's here because when he was nine years old, he heard the gospel. And he turned and placed his faith in me. And, and I took all of his dirtiness and all of his sin, and I washed it away by my blood. And I gave him the white robe of my righteousness. And his name is in the Lamb's book of life. And it will never be erased. And so Wade is here because of my grace, because of my salvation. He's not perfect. He's a sinner. But he has been gloriously born again. He has been forgiven. He's been saved. He's been redeemed. That's why he's here. Jesus will make that confession on our behalf. For the audience of glory. Can you imagine what that will be like? Can you imagine the joy, the unfettered joy when you hear the Lord Jesus Christ open up his mouth and with his lips confess your name? That's a reward of those that are faithful. So we've seen that a dead church may not know it's dead. And a dead church has not been keeping watch, and a dead church is merely existing and lacks purpose, and a dead church has forgotten some things, and, and God's mighty movement doesn't stop because of a dead church. But there's one final thing I want to just share with you. Wait, how does a church come alive if it's dead? Or, I think in the case of Longview Point, I don't think we're a dead church, I think we're a church that's alive. How does a church that's alive keep from being a dead church? That's a good question, isn't it? How do we stop from, how do we keep from getting to that point? Well, look what Jesus says, wake up. Verse 2, strengthen the things that remain. Remember, repent. That's how a church wakes up or, or keeps from dying. But how do those things happen practically? How do, we, how do we wake up and strengthen and repent and remember? How do we do that? I'll give you two things very quickly. Number one, the ministry of the Word. 
He says there in verse 3, Strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Verse 3, so remember what you have received and heard. Go back to the truth. Go back to the word of God. Build your church on the foundation of the authority of the Bible. Then in verse 6, he says this after every message to every church. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear and heed the word of God. That's what he says. And so if we're going to be a church that is alive and not a church that is dead, we've got to hear and heed the word of God. Everything we do should be built upon the foundation of Scripture. Public worship, connect groups, outreach, family life, everything should be built upon the firm foundation of Scripture. Because when we walk away from the Bible, we will die. Secondly, the ministry of the Spirit. Look in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God. Now what does that phrase mean? The seven spirits of God. We know the Bible teaches there's one God existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So why does it say here the seven spirits of God instead of just the Holy Spirit? Well, this phrase speaks of the uniqueness of the Holy Spirit in that he has a ministry to each of the seven churches. Even though he's one person in the Godhead, he is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's ubiquitous. He's, he's everywhere. So here's what that means. Because the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, he can be here at Longview Point this morning and change our church. Amen? But he can also, at the same time, be meeting with the church down the road and changing other churches too. And, and because the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, he can change my life individually and he can change your life at the same time individually. So when he says the seven spirits, he's speaking of the role of the Spirit in each of the seven churches. That's what, that's what he means there. And the point is this. If you're going to come alive, if you're going to stay alive, it's going to be because the Spirit is working in your midst. The Holy Spirit of God. Look what he says in verse 6. Let him hear what the Spirit says. Now I want you to hear me carefully. The way that God changes folks, the way that God gives life is always... By his word, apply to someone's life through his spirit. Always. Always. And there's a great picture of this in the Old Testament that, that drives home this reality. In Ezekiel 37, the Lord comes to Ezekiel and gives him a vision. Now this was a dark time in Israel. Israel had rebelled against God and God had allowed the Babylonians to overthrow them and take them into captivity in Babylon. A very dark time. But the Lord wanted... Uh, Ezekiel to know and the people of Israel to know I'm not through with you yet I'm going to bring you home I'm going to I'm going to bring you back to your homeland and I'm going to use you to send a Messiah who will give life to people and to communicate this message he, he shares this vision with Ezekiel he takes him to a valley of dry bones he, he sees an army that had been decimated by an enemy and the bones were dry which means they had been dead for a while this pictures the spiritual lifelessness of the nation of Israel at this time and it pictures anyone's spiritual lifelessness. And the Lord is about to teach Ezekiel a lesson. He says, Ezekiel, preach to the bones. Now, they didn't cover that in seminary. Preach to the bones. And he begins to proclaim the word of God. You know what happens? The bones begin to come back together and the skeletal structure forms and, and, and the bones begin to do something. And even though the, the skeletal form is, is intact and, and, they're, and they're coming together, they're still not alive. They're just bones. 
And so the Lord says, breathe on these bones. Which is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. And the, whole, and the Holy Spirit begins to, to breathe life in these bones and, and tendons and sinews and, and skin and, and it comes on these bones and, and that dead army, that lifeless army comes to life through the preaching of the word and the power of the spirit, which is an illustration of how God works. So wait, how does God change my life? The Word of God and the Spirit of God. How does God change a church? The Word of God, the Spirit of God. How does God make a dead church come to life? The Word of God, the Spirit of God. How does God keep a church from dying? The Word of God, the Spirit of God. And so if we'll found our ministry on the Word of God and ask the Holy Spirit to fill us up, empower us, guide us, have His way in our midst, we can be a church that is alive for the glory of God. We-